Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. This is Season 2, Episode 1, and it's entitled Psalm 23, A Song for Hard Places. So I want to welcome you uh, to this uh, new season. If you're new to Gospel Wabi Sabi, let me just quickly explain, explain the meaning of the phrase. It's a Japanese way of finding beauty in things that are imperfect or incomplete. Uh, things that have lost their shine, that don't look new, that are not hip, but that have an intrinsic value that goes very deep. I think uh, the wabi-sabi phrase describes perfectly the way Jesus looked at people and treated people and saw their value, their beauty, as God's creation, even when they were broken and imperfect and damaged. Wabi-sabi describes how the gospel is good news for imperfect people like you and me. Now, if season one was a marathon, which was 53 episodes going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, here in season two, it's going to be more of a sprint, leading up to my knee replacement surgery in December. Uh, so what we're going to do is a short take on various parts of the life of the ancient King David, mainly from the Psalms, and then I'm going to take a few weeks off in December to concentrate on my knee rehab, and I hope you'll be praying for me. And then in January, we're going to start a new series called Singing the Blues, based on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So, Psalm 23. And honestly, of all the messages and sermons I have ever done in over 43 years of ministry, I think this may be my personal favorite. So let's get ready for a psalm, a song for hard places. The central purpose of this podcast is to point people to Jesus Christ in a way that is relevant and meaningful to everyday life. So why are we now switching to Psalm 23? Well, because it's one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. Most people, even if they don't practice any faith, most people know at least portions of this great psalm. And for many people, it's their favorite of all the psalms or maybe their favorite part of the entire Bible. It's thought of as a psalm of comfort that's been read a billion times in hospital rooms, at memorial services, funerals. But because it is so familiar, it's also in danger of being turned into something that is overly sentimental. Fluffy white lambs leaping through a green meadow splashing in a cool mountain stream. A keen-eyed shepherd in a crisp white robe watching over the flock. It's the kind of Bible passage that gets embroidered on pillows. And that's the danger, because when something from the Bible becomes that familiar, it is so easy to sanitize, to neutralize, and then it loses its power to actually touch your heart or transform your life. Psalm 23 is actually a message for tough times, about how the Good Shepherd can make a difference in getting you through what you're going through. It wasn't written to end up on a, as a flowery script on a Hallmark card. It's actually a very gritty poem about life in the face of anxiety and fear and stress in terribly difficult circumstances, even the threat of death. This hit home for me a few years back when I saw a movie called The Book of Eli. Denzel Washington stars as Eli, this lone wolf nomadic wanderer in a post-apocalyptic world where civilization has just been shredded. The landscape is a gray-brown dust bowl of rusted metal and broken down buildings, anarchy rules, but Eli has a mission. Supposedly, he has in his possession the very last remaining Bible 
on the whole planet. All of the copies of the Bible have been destroyed. He's got the only Bible left, and a divine voice has instructed him to take it to a special place, a sanctuary, where people are rebuilding civilization. But it's a long trek to get there, and the bad guys want the book, because they think the Bible will give them some kind of magical power to conquer their enemies. So they are hunting Eli to get his copy of the Bible. Now along the way, Eli is joined by a young woman who is illiterate. She doesn't know how to read. She has never even seen a book, and she doesn't know anything at all about the Bible. She doesn't understand what makes the Bible so important that people are willing to fight and die to possess it. At one point, she asks Eli to explain it to her, to read her something from the book. So what does he choose? What passage would best summarize for her the entire message of this mysterious, powerful, sought-after book? What passage would you pick if you were in his situation? One passage to explain something, to explain to someone the meaning and the value and the power of God's word. So Eli stands and he begins to recite Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I was amazed by that scene. Reading the Bible respectfully, powerfully, correctly in a Hollywood movie, almost unheard of, right? I'm not recommending the movie because it is pretty violent, but I was amazed by how the scene actually puts Psalm 23 closer to its original context, its original feel, the dry, dusty, semi-arid world of the ancient Middle East, where your lips are always parched and you sleep with one eye open. The psalm was written by King David about 3,000 years ago, in a time when he was surrounded by violence and political intrigue and death. To really understand the power of Psalm 23, you have to get inside his skull. Now, in his great little book, out of the miry clay, John Hercus describes how the psalm was probably written when David was an elderly man after he had been king a long time. His life had gone through many serious ups and downs, and David had learned one important thing, that life is a contact sport, a full contact sport where you bump into other people hard, and you get bruised and battered and bloodied, and sometimes the injuries come from the people who are closest to you, your family members, they're often the ones who cause the most damage. But unlike in sports, in life, there's no timeout, no halftime, no referee, and no way to keep score. You just have to keep going, even though it hurts. You have to keep playing through the pain. So what do you do with your pain? That's important. Where you put it, how you deal with the bruises and the bumps. That's what makes the difference in life, how you handle your pain when you're going through hard things. In writing Psalm 23, King David is looking back over his life as older men sometimes will do. He's going back to his roots as a shepherd boy. Those formative, pre-adolescent, awkward years when, you know, you're not really a boy, but you're not yet a man. 
I don't care how old you get, when you always carry that, that boy inside the man, that young girl inside the woman. We don't ever really outgrow that young person that we used to be, and we carry the pain and the joy of those early experiences with us. A few years before I retired from my church in New Jersey, a woman in her late 70s was visiting the area from Pennsylvania, decided to come to worship with us. I said something in my message that day about the pain that can be experienced in families. So she tracked me down during the coffee hour, and I'll never forget the very first words she said to me. Literally, she said this. When I was 14, I wanted to kill my stepfather, but my mother hid the gun. So I ran away from home and never went back. Now, it's hard to know where to go in a conversation after an opening line like that. In her late 70s, and she was still carrying the pain of her early years as if it had happened yesterday. Now, God had met her along the way and gave her the strength and the courage to keep going, but she still carried so much of that early pain. Even when we're old, we carry that little boy, that little girl inside of us. We never really lose that person we used to be. So go back in your mind's eye to when we first hear of David, 1 Samuel 16, if you want to read it later. The nation of Israel is fighting for its life, enemies on all sides. They had a king named Saul, but his leadership was in ruins. He had disobeyed God and was rejected as king over Israel. So God directed the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king picked from one of the sons of a man named Jesse. Now Jesse is a proud as punch that one of his sons will be chosen. So he parades his boys before Samuel like prize bulls at the county fair, like auditions for American Idol. You know, the tension is high. Who will be selected? Will it be who will be rejected? First, there's Eliab, the eldest. Now he's just kind of a swaggering bully who's used to getting his way. But Samuel passes him by. Then there's Abinadab. He's kind of arrogant, kind of self-possessed, and it's not him either. Then Shammah. And well, you get the idea. After the third son, the Bible stops naming them all. All seven sons pass before Samuel. Each in turn is rejected. Each one publicly humiliated. And then the show is over and Samuel asked Jesse, are these all your sons? And the question was like a kick in the stomach. Oh yeah, David. I forgot about David, but you can't want him. You can't be serious. He's the runt of the litter. And that's where we begin to understand the pain in David's life, what he was going through. Now, see, he was born when his father, Jesse, was quite old. It was a second marriage for both his mom and dad. They each had a long string of children from their previous marriages, and some of them were all grown up before David was born. So David actually had nieces and nephews who were older than he was. And there was a serious rift in the family between these two lines of offspring. Lots of jealousy between them, and family gatherings were not that fun. And David, as the youngest product of this mixed marriage, he took the brunt of the conflict. He was the bottom of the food chain, the lowest rung of the ladder. He was the odd duck, most likely to be forgotten in all their family drama. Always the baby, always the nuisance, the one the others resented. He was, in fact, expendable. The family didn't need him. The older brothers didn't want him. So you can imagine the bullying, the ridicule, the beatdowns he suffered at their hands. And he's not protected by his mother. She's actually never even mentioned in the biblical text. His mother is completely absent from the story. So what does that tell you? David, at best, he's neglected. At worst, he's physically 
and emotionally abused by his family. So they gave him the job nobody else wanted, the job where he could do the least damage, where he would be out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, out in the wilderness with the sheep for long, lonely periods of time. Now, David was just an ordinary kid. To the naked eye, there was nothing outstanding about him. He wasn't qualified for anything, so he wasn't even invited to the Bethlehem party. He was just a 12 or 13-year-old, love-starved, starved, insecure, mixed-up, cast-off kid. And so when David later wrote in Psalm 27:10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You can tell he wrote that out of the pain of his own family. And yet God walked with him. As if that wasn't enough, it turns out David is actually a genius. Brilliant. We discover over his lifetime that David has the musical talent of a Beethoven, the literary and poetic skill of a Shakespeare, the hand-to-eye coordination of a Tom Brady, the political wisdom of a Winston Churchill, and the military genius of a General Patton. He could literally do it all, yet mix all that talent together in a boy who lives in a family of lug nuts and barbarians. Imagine a Nobel Prize winning poet growing up in David's home. No one saw his potential. No one encouraged him. No one cultivated him. No one mentored him. No one gave him a chance. He was on his own from the get-go. And all that wrapped wrapped up in this one lonely shepherd boy. And yet God walked with him. Now, what happens to a young person who is denied his or her sense of belonging, who's pushed to the bottom of the pile? Well, they either fold up in defeat or they learn to fight. And David was a fighter. He came out swinging and he kept on fighting, kick, punch, scratch, claw, bite, grab, tear. Can you just imagine him trying to get his share of food at the dinner table? But being physical wasn't enough. All the others, all his brothers were bigger, older, stronger. He had to learn to use his head or he'd just be their punching bag. The home David grew up in was tragically loveless. So where did he go to find any kind of love or affection? Well, like a lot of rejected, lonely kids, they find solace in having a pet, a dog, a cat, a gerbil. A relationship with a pet can fill the emptiness that such a neglected child can suffer. And so David took to his sheep. He loved his sheep, loved them so much he would fight for them. You can imagine the anguish he felt if a mountain lion ever got hold of one of his sheep to see its torn body shredded bleeding. Imagine how much that would have twisted his stomach into knots. He was half the size of a bear or a mountain lion, but he had learned to fight. So he wasn't afraid. He had his rod and his staff, and he knew how to use them. Now, in the Middle East, every shepherd carries a rod and a staff, even to this day among the Bedouin shepherds. The rod is a handmade club. They take a small sapling and they dig down uh, in the ground until they can carve down to the knot where the trunk joins the root. It's shaped into a smooth, rounded head of hard wood. If you've ever watched the Star Wars spin-off on the Disney Channel on the character Boba Fett, in one of the episodes, he carves one of these rods from the root of a tree as a symbol of his inclusion into a tribe of desert people. Every Bedouin shepherd boy spends hours practicing with his club, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. Becomes the main weapon of defense and protection for himself and for his sheep to drive away predators like wolves and stray dogs. In every situation, the shepherd fights with his rod. The shepherd's staff 
was a long slender stick with one end curved into a crook or hook. When lambs are born, or if a lamb wanders away from its mother, the shepherd doesn't want his scent to be on the lamb because the mother then might reject her offspring. So the shepherd uses the staff to push the lamb closer to their mothers so that they'll be nurtured and fed. The staff is also used for guiding. Uh, sometimes it's laid gently against the side of a sheep to prod it in the right direction, just a gentle pressure. And the shepherd will walk with his staff just touching the sheep simply as a sign of special attention, of reassurance that he is near so that the shepherd knows they are in touch with each other. And sheep do get into trouble. They are notorious for wandering off. It happens so often it was a problem that everyone understood. And that's why Isaiah could write, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way. That's Isaiah 53, 6. Sheep wander. And then they, when they wander, they frequently fall down a crevice or get stuck on a steep ledge. And Isaiah says, we are all like that before God lost. And that's where the hook came in. The shepherd would get them around the neck or around a limb and lift them to safety. And, you know, Jesus used this image in the parable of the lost sheep, going and searching for the one who has wandered off. That's God's heart, and it was David's heart, too. And how was this lonely kid banished in the wilderness? How was he going to fill up his time with his genius IQ? Uh, he can't just talk to the sheep all day. And so he dreams. He dreams the dreams of a homeless kid who lives outside under the stars. No roof, no bedroom of his own. He dreams of green pastures instead of the rocky soil he's used to. He dreams of mountain streams and a home he never had. He makes up poems and he sets them to music. He sings and strums away on a homemade lyre. There's no one to make fun of him or to tell him that his voice stinks or that his ideas are stupid. No one to step on his dreams. And his dreams, they're big dreams. He puts words together. He sings and somehow... He connects with God in a special way. God was with him. So I want you to see this young man on a rugged hillside, barely a teenager, trying to find his identity, trying to feel his way through a difficult life, longing to be loved. If I had the chance to travel back in time to interview him, I'd love to sit next to him on, on a rock in the mountains, you know, with the flock nearby. And I think I'd want to ask something like this. David, I can tell that you love your sheep and that they are safe with you. You care for them. But what about you? Who, lack, who looks after you? You can see his young face tighten. Maybe the beginnings of a tear in the corner of his eye that he quickly wipes away. And then he stands and sort of says boldly to the world, you know, they think they can beat me down. They think I'm just a problem. They think I won't ever amount to anything. But you know what? Yahweh the Lord, he's my shepherd. The Lord looks after me. He's the one in charge of my life. He's leading me and he'll guide me to greener pastures. Just you wait and see. And he'll look after me when I'm down so I'm not scared. Not with God beside me. I don't care what I go through. He will still be with me. Even things that look deadly and frightening. If I can look after my sheep with my crook and my club, just think of what protection God will give me as he guards me with his weapons. He'll keep me safe. Right now, all I get are leftovers. But you know what? Someday, someday he'll set up a huge banquet table just for me. The table will be loaded with food, the wine flask spilling over, all of it just for me. 
and my enemies will just have to stand there in the corner and they won't get a single bite. All the days of my life, God will take care of me. I know it will be hard, but my shepherd God will surround me with kindness and goodness. I'm going to do something with my life. His love will go ahead of me every day. It will wash over me like perfumed oil. His love will cleanse me and refresh my soul no matter what. And God, God will get me a home, a real home, not this barren wilderness. And when it's all over, Yahweh will welcome me into his home because he's the father I never had. And I will live forever with him. Wouldn't you want to say, David, write that down. Write that down for other kids, the other people struggling, disturbed, unwanted, misunderstood, rejected, afraid, tired, worn out, ready to give up and discouraged, stepped on, trying to hold it together. Write that down for the people whose homes are tragic or whose lives are empty. Write that down for people who are crippled by anxiety or depression or loneliness. Write that down for people who wrestle with guilt or addictions. Write that down for people who are stubborn, self-willed, trying to be self-sufficient. David, write that down for everyone to read, no matter what they're going through, so that they can understand the only thing that makes any difference is knowing there's a shepherd who loves you, who wants to guide you, who wants to watch over you, who wants to welcome you home. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said something amazing. He said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus claimed that title for himself. He is the good shepherd. He's the one that David was writing about. He's the one who was with David. He's the shepherd who goes in search of the one last sheep, in search of you, in search of me when we wander and when we fall down a hole. And he's the one who laid down his life at the cross for you and me, because that's how much he loves. So is Jesus your shepherd? And I mean, really, on a practical level, is he leading your life like he led David? Is he in charge of you? Do you have that confidence, that assurance? I want to challenge you to do something this week. Every morning for the next seven days, just begin your day by simply reciting Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. And then carry that truth with you throughout the day. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. Maybe just that one verse. I know you can do it. I know you can. And maybe for extra credit, you'd like to memorize all of Psalm 23 so that you can carry that powerful promise in your heart everywhere you go. Repeat it when you're going into that meeting or into that classroom or into that doctor's office, into that place that normally stresses you out. During those times, those dark thoughts begin to come over you. And just simply say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. You may even want to add listening to some music. There's a great version of Psalm 23 called All I Need by J.J. Heller. And you can get that on YouTube. I'll put it in the program notes for uh, those of you who are supporters can find it there. J.J. Heller's All I Need, great version. Use that along with just memorizing Psalm one or Psalm 23, verse 1. Now, a number of years ago, my wife Donna's family gathered in a hospital on the eastern shore of Maryland to say their goodbyes to Donna's mother who was dying at the time. She was in hospice care, and we weren't sure when it would happen, but she was dying, so we took turns sort of sitting vigil in her room with her. 
My son John and I were alone in the room with her, and she was receiving a lot of morphine, so she wasn't conscious. But, you know, people in that state can often still hear what's going on. So for what turned out to be my final words with her, I kind of pulled my chair over. I leaned in close and told her that I loved her, and then I whispered in her ear, Psalm 23. There wasn't anything better to say. This shepherd's boy's simple but powerful poem about his relationship with the Lord, written down when he was old, but I think composed in his heart when he was quite young, written down so that they can be your words as well, no matter what you're going through this week, that you can say it with confidence. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Have a great week.